Hello and welcome to the first episode of the podcast, Unsettled Monuments, Unsettling Heritage, a series hosted by Radio Siams, the podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our program today is made possible by Cornell's task force for the humanities and arts known as CIVIC, and particularly its initiative in humanities and public life, whose support we recognize and appreciate. I am Lori Kachadorian of the Department of Near Eastern Studies. Today, we are happy to welcome as our inaugural guest, Dr. Caitlin DeSilvey, Professor of Cultural Geography at the University of Exeter. Dr. DeSilvey's research centers on the cultural dimensions of environmental change, particularly as it pertains to heritage and the work of social memory. She is the author of several books, as well as articles published in leading journals of heritage studies and cultural geography. Her most recent book, Curated Decay, Heritage Beyond Saving, published in 2017 by the University of Minnesota Press, is the focus of our podcast today. We are also joined by several Cornell faculty, all fellows in the civic research group Unsettled Monuments, Unsettling Heritage, who will introduce themselves in due course. Caitlin, it's hard to imagine a more provocative way to unsettle heritage than to suggest that we can think heritage beyond saving and that decay itself can be the object of curation rather than the very force that curation is meant to repel and reverse. As you argue, this idea runs so contrary it's so de to deeply entrenched Western conventions of heritage preservation. I wonder if you could begin by explaining your challenging title and summarizing what you see as the main argument of your book for listeners who haven't had the pleasure of engaging with it yet. Sure, thank you, Lori. Um, so the title of the book, Curated Decay, Heritage Beyond Saving, works, I suppose, um, counterintuitively, as you suggested. Um, and it's probably helpful just to break it down a bit, really. Um, and one of the things I've been doing quite a lot lately is having conversations with people who are practitioners in the heritage field. And it's, I've realized it's actually helpful to talk about curated decay in relation to two words that they sometimes use, which are managed decline um, in relation to heritage assets. Um, and managed decline is often talked about as something which is sort of unfortunate, uh, perhaps inevitable, a bit like benign neglect, the way that plays in um, perhaps in more North American contexts. And so if we think about what curated decay might mean as a counterpoint to that, one of the things I'm really interested in is thinking about curation as a form of care. So actually thinking about how you might attend carefully to things um, which are going through some form of transformation and caring for heritage things, perhaps, if uh, that's how they're designated. So there's that element of carefulness, which I think is quite different from managing. Managing has a sort of, can, can have a kind of reluctance, perhaps, to it. Curation, perhaps more creative. Um, and then decay uh, is a process that is certainly in heritage context, as you suggested, it's mostly associated with, you know, pretty negative um, terms around trying to combat decay or arrest decay. Um, it's not something which is usually embraced. Um, but one of the things I try to explore in the book is how decay in other contexts, particularly sort of ecologically and biologically, is always um, it's part of a process of renewal and regeneration and that there are things which emerge through decay um, and become available um, which are not accessible when you have a 
more stable object. Um, so really trying to understand some of the, the value in decay and in entropy um, and to articulate that in relation to some quite specific places, which we'll probably talk about. And then the heritage beyond saving, I think what I was trying to get at, which you've already touched on, is this idea that we can think beyond saving, uh, so thinking beyond um, the impulse to always preserve, to protect um, in a material sense, um, but also looking at specifically as sites um, and places that are beyond saving, so like sort of lost causes, really. and. Uh, there's an element of that in all the sites that I worked with in the book. Great, thank you, Caitlin. My name is Sabrina Papazian. I'm the Civic Postdoctoral Associate in Critical Heritage Studies. And something that I've been thinking about recently is how many works in the field of heritage studies gloss over the history or the physicality of heritage sites and in favor of the social, political, and economic outcomes that come from heritage governance and management. What I found really striking about your work in particular is how descriptive and invocative your writing style was. And I was wondering if you think that there's more room for these sorts of descriptions in the field of heritage studies. And I'm also very curious about your process of taking field notes. And when did you decide to um, use this literary turn in your work? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I don't actually think it was a decision um, on some level. Um, that's how I engage with places, um, through language, through writing about them, through taking notes and tracing <laughs> often sort of details that somehow trigger some my imagination in some way or that unlock some insight about a place. Um, it's a method, but it's a pretty loose method. And uh, But I am fairly faithful about not writing. Um, I don't write about places I haven't experienced or visited. And that creates certain limitations, I think, in what I what I allow myself to, to do. And uh, but I think I there's a certain kind of intuition and trust that through an engagement with a place it will reveal um, parts of its story that help me um, reflect on sort of wider stories and wider contexts. And so it sort of takes this the very particular and then um, expands that out to try and speculate um, about other places and other processes. Um, but I think as a, you know, I, w I work as a cultural geographer, which is a, a pretty wonderful and uh, wild subdiscipline in that we, we really don't um, have many rules about what we're allowed to do. And so this kind of close writing and thick description, you know, we borrow bits from anthropology certainly, but um, there's also a fairly well-developed tradition within cultural geography of this kind of writing. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful, actually, because it gives me permission to, to work in a way that I think I might not have that um, in other disciplines. And I think for this particular project, um, it's probably worth saying that all I was doing was sort of puzzling through a series of places that helped me think about an idea that I was interested in. But it wasn't intended to be prescriptive in any way. It was really, yes, provocative, but also just um, sort of a reflective journey, really, trying to ask these places to help me think and to think with them. And so some of the more public uh, uses of the ideas since the book came out have been interesting to, to trace that and to think about um, how that conversations about curated decay now map on um, 
in uh, to other places in ways that certainly were never intended um, when I originally wrote the book. Hi, Caitlin. This is Kelly. King O'Brien again. I just had a question Hi. about, um, I recently read an article in The New Yorker that talked about a counter-movement to public memorials to the Confederacy, which suggests that one initiative is to preserve African-American historic sites that often actually don't exist right now due to arson, destruction, or decay, such as schools, buildings, neighborhoods, cemeteries. And one in particular is Chaco Bottom in Richmond, Virginia. So, but in contrast to your argument, which I find really interesting about material form is not needed to preserve memory, I think these people, Brent Leg in particular, would say the power that physical space has in shaping cultural memory. So I guess my question is, how do we reconcile the two? Do you have this problem of crisis of accumulation as Rodney Harrison has suggested? And also what you were saying about this idea of we don't need the material form to preserve culture. So how do we reconcile the two of those? Um, yeah, I guess I would uh, maybe just back up a little bit and um, argue that what I'm trying to say is not that we don't need the material form, it's that um, different forms of the material um, than the stable and discrete form <laughs> may be uh, worth working with as well. So a lot of what I talk about is sort of material on making and on becoming, but also getting caught up in other ecological processes and other species often moving in and um, the cultural histories that are born on sort of through these ecological processes and really trying to get a sense of the way that material can be uh, sort of, it's not the absence of material, it's the mutability of it and its tra transformational character and actually tracking these transformations and finding the stories in the process of transformation rather than in the um, assumption of preservation. So in relation to the kind of sites that you're talking about, there are materials there in these places, I would imagine, and there is a presence. It just may not be legible to us with the kinds of heritage lenses that we're used to wearing. So I guess I would be curious about trying to, I mean, if we're talking about complete absence, um, is there any way, I mean, there have been, there are interesting examples of archeologists actually working in sites, um, and Karen Till is a geographer who worked um, with the Aktivas Museum in Berlin trying to excavate histories from places which were apparent, where there was an apparent absence, but there was actually quite a lot of um, opportunity to excavate histories and very difficult histories in those places. So I suppose it's just a different set of t tools that you might bring. So rather than erecting a monument, it may be about working with that absence or with those traces in ways that um, allow of those stories to be surfaced. Hello, Caitlin. <clears throat> this is Alex Mergold here, uh, and thank you for, for, the, for the wonderful book. I found it incredibly um, kind of poetic, and actually have a number of questions, but um, I'll, I'll start with one. Uh, so again, I'm, I'm coming from the architecture school, and so architecture is a kind of, at least we, we teach our students, it's a very um, sort of optimistic profession, because you have to somehow think about the future. Uh, but at the same time, uh, and you have invoked a number of architects who are kind of interested in various degrees of entropy, including Gordon Murray Clark, who was actually one of our graduates from the 60s. Uh, but, and, you know, things like um, John Sowen's Bank of England come to mind, uh, with his, his rendering of it as a ruin. So I guess I'm wondering, uh, 
now with this tendency in the architectural kind of discourse to gravitate towards zero, zero carbon footprint and uh, this kind of the critique of architecture as something that's as, as a kind of as a mechanism that's responsible for a lot of uh, waste and uh, climate change ultimately. Uh, there seems to be some kind of irreconcilable um, kind of conflict almost between the kind of outward thinking about buildings that will be cleanly disassembled and then sort of reassembled again and this uh, kind of possibility of, of buildings essentially existing as a kind of cultural um, monuments as something that uh, one can sort of see uh, as, a, as a historical record. So I guess ultimately the question is, is sort of history, uh, preservation and architecture, are they kind of an odds as you see it? Hmm. Yeah, that's a, sort, of, that's sort of lots of interesting uh, um, possibility, I think, to think through that. I'm not sure the, the proposition that you're setting up makes that much sense to me, but um, I guess what I'm thinking about is uh, in the autumn last year, I had the opportunity to go to the launch of um, the Climate Heritage Network in Edinburgh, where you have practitioners from all over the world who are coming together to try to think um, about the way that heritage can engage in um, carbon mitigation, and but also also be a catalyst for thinking about um, heritage as a resource for low carbon building, for example. Um, you know, so traditional ways of building often had ways of cooling and heating, which are um, much less energy intensive than the ones that we use. And so uh, there was a really interesting dialogue around that, but then also quite a lot of. Um, discussion about the embedded carbon in existing buildings and adaptive reuse. Um, and so it seemed like a really exciting moment for heritage and architecture <laughs> to come together around that, um, in that conversation. Um, and I think in relation to the work that I did with Curated Decay, I think one thing that I've tried to make clear, which maybe isn't clear in the book, is certainly none of the buildings that I was looking at um, very few of them would have had any functional adaptive reuse potential. They were sort of a little too far gone for that. Um, and so it's certainly not about holding a structure out of the, those streams of reuse and um, repurposing, um, but more about recognizing when that isn't an option. And then at that point, what becomes interesting is that then those, those structures, as they become um, drawn into other processes become available for thinking about carbon mitigation from carbon sequestration, <laughs> you know, because you, you're sort of wilding uh, a landscape um, that might have been a designed landscape or taking a structure um, and that is now occupied by um, <clears throat> various plants and tree species and, and thinking about that as con contributing um, in other ways. So I, I just I think this porosity actually for the sort of when is it a building and when is it actually a landscape or when is it an ecology, um, I find that quite fascinating. But also just this recent work that's been going on around the sort of climate heritage movement, which is um, I think fascinating in that area. Thank you. And uh, this is Ben Anderson, research in the Department of Civil History of Art and Classics. Uh, and as as an art historian, I was really um, pleased by the um, close engagement in curated decay with one of the classics of the discipline, which is Aldous Riegel's essay, Theory of 20th Century Monument and Culture Monuments. 
uh, in which you develop sort of vocabulary for speaking about the different values that people attach to historical monuments. There's historical value, there's aesthetic value, but then there's also age value. And as you write in your book, this idea of age value is the kind of um, precedent for the sorts of topics that you're particularly interested in exploring. So my question is really about expertise in the realm of age value. Um, because as an art historian, I sort of feel like I can speak from a position of expertise about relative historic value of monuments and also relative aesthetic value of monuments. Um, but it's much harder to rank uh, monuments or landscapes in terms of age value. Or am I missing something? Is there a way of saying that one particular site or one particular building has greater age value than another site does? And can that kind of consideration feed them into policy discussions about where resources ought to be directed? Mm, that's a really interesting question. I think um, partly because it flags some of the real, the thornier issues that emerge when you try and implement this kind of thing in practice. Um, and I think one of the things that I gestured toward in the book, but I don't really dive deep into, is sort of histories of ruin gazing and aesthetic appreciation of ruination. And um, there is a deep you know, history there, um, Western and otherwise. And um, in some of the sites that I studied and some of the sites that I write about in the book, um, there has been a recognition of the aesthetic value of the sort of the patina of age and the, the way in which the decay of the buildings is conveying something about the passage of time. And you know, these are things that David Lowenthal wrote brilliantly about uh, decades ago. Um, and what's interesting about that is that when the practitioners and you know the, the people with expertise that I've um, I've worked with in these places when they're asked to actually make a judgment call about whether that um, the you know their perception of age value in itself is grounds for um, a particular management strategy, they get very uneasy because it, they feel like that's basically a subjective uh, judgment on their part and not one that they can assume as a universal value. Um, and so you end up in this space where uh, practitioners feel like they need other grounds for making the case for allowing that age value to be perpetuated. So there's sort of there needs to be a sort of whole suite of arguments that are available for, for choosing from. And that, and that particular one seems like people are often quite uneasy about it. And it might have something to do with the sort of legacy of, you know, having a certain sort of entitled position from which you were gazing upon the ruins. Um, and I don't think that's entirely gone away. And I think there's an element of that which lingers. And I think it's problematic if that then becomes the grounds for asserting the value of a certain management approach when there may be other sets of values which are actually circulating as well. I mean, in some ways, Re this is Laurie here again, Regal anticipated that problem because he specifically outlined age value as something that can be appreciated by everyone is the democratically available value. Um, and he sort of foreclosed uh, expertise as the basis for its assessment. So, uh, but without a solution uh, for what that means for the heritage management industry. Yeah, well, that wasn't his aim, was it? I mean, I think um, what also fascinates me about his argument is that um, the way he pulled back from uh, 
age value when he recognizes that the you know the terminal point <laughs> for these structures is actually their um their complete dissolution and disappearance and it seems like he has a little wobble there mm-hmm. <laughs> um where he's not quite willing to go there um and so that point that that wobble i think is fascinating <laughs> um and 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 i think what's interesting in the work i've been doing more recently is trying to ask whether you can give people other filters, you know, other ways of recognizing value that are emerging through that process of ruination. So they may be ecological, they may be chemical, you know, there may be things that are, the processes that are happening that if we can recognize them and make them legible, then there is a value. You have this sort of sense in which one set of values is starting to fade out while another one is emerging, but there's no absolute break there. Um, But a, a site stays um, available for a cultural reading longer, if that makes sense, <laughs> even as it breaks down. Um, and so a pile of rubble actually is not just a pile of rubble because there's plenty that you can say about how that stone was worked, where it came from, what lichens were colonizing it, you know, what that says about um, the quarry it came from, also the people who brought the stone there, you know. And, and so I guess that's where it's interesting to me is how you you, you cultivate an awareness of other possible narratives um, that are emerging as things appear to disappear. Thank you, Caitlin, for that um, uh, analysis. So I'm Durba Ghosh, and I'm from on the faculty of history. Um, and I come to your material, I think it's beautifully written. And if I had to make a new subtitle, I would say from Montana to Moyan, which I think worked um, so gorgeously in the book. Um, one of the questions I guess I'm interested in hearing more about, and it touches a little bit on what Sabrina started us off with, which was how did you choose these sites? Um, uh, I mean, did you know in advance these were the sites that you were going to look at? Um, or was it a book that emerged, kind of an argument that emerged kind of experientially? And, and I think I have a sense of that. Um, and then I have a second question, which is that because you had quite these quite distinct sites that you were looking at. I wondered about the role of institutions um, and your engagement with practitioners in each of these institutions, in each of these spaces, right? So we've been reading um, last semester, and we're going to read a bit more, and the, the National Trust, of course, featuring very prominently in a lot of the scholarship, it features uh, a bit in period of decay, but you have these other institutions too. And I guess I wonder if you can say a little bit about that as well. Yeah, sure. Um, well, as far as the choosing, uh, you know, it, it, it may be accurate to say they chose me to a certain extent. I, there was, um, although I suppose as the book started to come together, that I, I was more actively seeking. Um, but the beginning was really this, uh, this amazing uh, former homestead in uh, the foothills north of Missoula, Montana, um, where I really was, it was, this was the late 90s, um, and I had the, op- I was living in Missoula, and I was working as a community activist and put, setting up community gardens and teaching people how to run worm bins and build straw bale houses, and I, I got um, a bee in my bonnet about gleaning apples from local orchards, and so we set up a little program to do this, and Someone said, oh, yeah, yeah, well, there's this homestead up in the hills, and the city just acquired it, so um, you should head up there and check it out, because I think um, 
they've got these old apple trees. And so we, we went up and from my first encounter with that place, it was, it wasn't sort of wasn't optional <laughs> for me to get stuck in and try and figure it out. And at that point it, um, it had been very lightly inhabited and then abandoned for a while. And so, um, I think there's something worth mentioning, which is not what you asked exactly, but that the, the, the sense that one has when you first encounter these places that somehow, you know, there's this sort of element of the um, slightly, you know, the element of trespassing perhaps, or slightly illicit, like sort of peering through doorways and um, trying to sense a place. Um, that sense of exploration, I think, that initial contact is really incredibly powerful. And um, one of the paradoxes of what I'm talking about is that I'm talking about places where that sen- that, that initial charge and fire of encountering a place um, is it can't be sort of infinitely accessible to everybody who comes to it and so there's this sort of but by trying to somehow contain a place um, and create a narrative that makes sense of it you're also foreclosing um, on that experience for other people and to a certain extent uh, but the other places yeah they came out of I mean once I moved to um, the UK I had the opportunity I think there was, was a receptivity some of the work that I was doing and so I was able to start to work quite closely with the National Trust um, but also to nose around in other places that I thought might help me tell parts of the story Um, and because my methods are a little bit unorthodox you know and it's a lot of just you know a lot of nosing around and and having chats with people uh, about things that often this sort of w- the story emerges quite slowly and over a long period of time. And I think, as I said in the beginning, this wasn't meant to be a book where I sort of exposed the institutional um, deliberations that were going on around these places. Although I was aware of them very often, it didn't feel like that part of the narrative really belonged to this book. And that's, those are conversations I've gotten much more stuck into since the book came out. Um, and I think there's a sort of absent politics in the book, and um, I'm fully aware of that. And I think there was an element of that receptivity to these places and that willingness to let them tell me what they wanted to tell me and that close writing, actually, that made it very difficult for me to also tell those stories about you know, the more prosaic stuff about politics, decision-making, policies, you know, how that is all playing out. Those stories are incredibly important, um, but it felt like I couldn't hold them both in one container, both sets of stories in one container, if that makes sense. And so um, the stuff I'm doing now is very much more swung into the sort of policy realm, and uh, it probably will stay there for a little while just because it, there's quite a lot of appetite for trying to figure out how you actually do this in practice and what curated decay looks like um and so i feel like i'm constantly having to say but i never meant it you know i never meant it to be a a new um sort of heritage management approach that sort of took its place in the in the in the guidance manuals but it it sort of has this quality about it there's something about it that people feel like they need um and so translating that has become an interesting part of what i do and so that institutional storytelling is is much more central now let me just pause for one minute
Hi, Caitlin. This is Adam Smith. I'm in the anthropology department in the archaeology program here at Cornell. Uh, your last answer, I think, really brings me right back to where I wanted to uh, make a couple of inquiries, and that's to the theme of care and the way in which uh, engagement with uh, ruins in the making uh, evokes certain responses of care. It was quite immediate to me that in several of your cases there was a palpable but perhaps an understated metaphorical parallel between the maintenance of the place and what we might think of as the regimes of care that circulate around the human body. Uh, in the Mullion Cove example, the one that sort of really took hold for me, the National Trust policy of managed retreat seemed to really be articulated as a kind of do not resuscitate order for the place. Uh, the character of Alistair in your text gives a very nice expression of this, interpreting the policy as, in a sense, waiting for a moment of clarity as to when, as I was reading it, to pull the plug on restoring the place. Uh, so I wanted to hear a little bit more from you as to what the degree, to what degree is the idea of curated decay indebted to organic conceptualizations of the human body and its beginnings and its ends? Uh, and to what degree is it also a displacement of our anxieties about managing our own processes of death onto the material body of heritage? Yeah, um, <clears throat> interesting um, question. I think I, chapter 7, which is a chapter um, about the lighthouse, actually engages very explicitly with this parallel between the body and the heritage object. Um, so yes, I think it, it's true that, that you can read that into what was happening at Mullion. Um, but in this other site, which is also um, sort of connected to the National Trust, but not um, owned by them, it, it was a lighthouse where it, it was on a, a rapidly eroding bank, so that it was inevitably going to be um, lost. Um, but there were very different approaches that were being taken about whether or not uh, it sort of it, it, its life should be prolonged, or whether um, a do not resuscitate order should be applied. Um, and when I wrote that chapter, it, um, it was a quickly, you know, it was quite, the, the, the situation was changing quite rapidly and it has continued to change, so it's hard to sort of summarize what's happened with that. But I guess one of the things I did in that chapter that felt kind of risky and that has actually not uh, been universally uh, appreciated was I, I, I told the story alongside a story about the death of my own grandmother and similar tensions within my own family about her end-of-life care and just trying to understand how we let go well. I think there is actually quite a lot that you can learn from palliative care and um, and how we imagine that process as one which requires a certain attentiveness and a willingness to expose oneself. I mean, one of the other things that I try to play with in the book is this idea that if we um, are willing to sort of unsettle our own the boundaries of our own sense of self and um, understand ourselves as somehow being connected with these material entities which are going through processes of transformation just as we are, um, and understanding that we're connected through the processes of change, not just through the impulse to protect, that um, we may be more comfortable with allowing that change to happen. And so I think that um, 
think there are really interesting things that you can do with that. I mean, uh, the, there is a version of um, the way that I started to talk about um, this idea of blurring the boundaries between the sort of the human body and the, the heritage body, and the asset was the idea of palliative curation. But there are many people who are very uncomfortable, actually, about making that um, connection. And so I've sort of <laughs> stopped using it um, actively because I think it it's not my intention to sort of unsettle people to the point of discomfort with that. But I think it is, to the extent that it's helpful, it can be really interesting to think that way. Um, and Do, do you worry at all about the anthropomorphism that's involved in sort of taking the human as the measure of the material? Because your text is so deeply attentive to the idiosyncrasies and the specificities of the material world that it would seem that a regime of care that emerges out of those particularities would be somewhat different than, say, the, the palliative regimes that circulate around human existence. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think some of the things that um, I've actually had um, conversations about the book where uh, this sense in which by cleaving so closely to the material stories, I often forget about the people's stories, um, which I think is interesting. I mean, the people who inhabited these places are not central to these stories, and that is another one of these m moments when, looking back on it, I think about if the process of writing, doing that close writing through the materials and through those processes actually made it difficult for me to, to, to attend to some of those stories, the more social stories and, and the more um, uh, lived elements of experience in these places um but yes as far i i think it's an interesting one more broadly actually about how i mean the, the central narrator in the book is is very much a, sort of within um a centered human subject i guess you know I, I i didn't unpick that um and so i think those are the forms of stories i know how to tell but i've been trying to actually to play with trying to invert some that element of the narrative and trying to imagine, you know, writing through um, some of these objects that I'm interested in or from their perspective. I'm not quite sure what that would look like. Uh, Caitlin, this is Alex again. I was just thinking as Adam was asking the question and you answer, uh, it sort of occurred to me as I was reading, especially the the the, the Mullion Cove, this kind of the Sisyphean labor of uh, putting it back and taking you know, taking it apart, uh, that maybe there's something to be said about a kind of modern, let's say, speed of construction. We you know we see buildings go up and you know within like a year or two. I mean, we sort of have a sort of uh, let's say an unrealistic expectation of of, uh, of being able to construct something very quickly. So we tend to be sort of equally unrealistically upset about things coming down. So I wonder if maybe if one were to reflect on some kind of pre-industrial ways of building things where construction was a very kind of, let's say, organic process. One sort of can live one's entire life in a building under construction and one can also live one's entire life in a building kind of in decay and sort of somewhere in between. So I wonder if there is something to be said about that and that kind of piggybacks on the question on the kind of processes, something like you know, this idea of spolia uh, which was you know, very much in, uh, sort of, uh, well known and uh, obvious method in medieval times, especially, where you sort of take a building and disassemble it into something else. And there are these kind of anxieties of maintaining monument in its entirety was not really even present. It seems like so. I wonder what you what you think about uh, that. 
Yeah, no, I think that's fascinating. Um, one of the things that um, I write a little bit about in the book is, um, so in Cornwall we have um, many, many granite uh, engine houses which housed the um, machinery that would have brought the miners down into the mine shafts um, and then also brought the ore back up. And so there are uh, hundreds of them. And the the industry really started to wind down um you know, over 100 years ago, and so you've had these structures in the landscape, and there has been a sort of informal tradition of using the stone. You know, if you have an engine house on your property, it's, you know, uh, <coughs> dimension granite. You can take um, a few blocks and use it to shore up a shed or build a new building. And so there's, there was this sort of informal practice of spolia, of reuse, like, um, and, uh, and then when the... Um, when we were designated a uh, UNESCO World Heritage Site in 2006, a lot of that stopped. Uh, many of the engine houses were subsequently um, uh, consolidated and um, stabilized. And so it was a very interesting moment, sort of a break in that tradition of reuse. It's another wonderful example of a uh, stately home near where I live and work. Um, where there was a fire at one point, and it sort of had this checkered 20th century history. And um, the current owners are aware that parts of that building are now scattered in the sort of farmhouses and um, mm -hmm. and the stately homes surrounding, you know, uh, other homes and dwellings surrounding the property. Um, and they just sort of were dispersed out into the landscape. And that kind of distributed material history, I think, is fascinating. And I think it's that kind of storytelling where there's, it's not about absence. Um, sure, the thing is, the the, the material, the, uh, the matter, is no longer where it once was, but it was only there temporarily. And actually telling the story of its movement um, can be very, very rewarding because it actually focuses on those connections and also how those elements are still living in other contexts um, and contributing to other structures. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just sort of being able to have the resources to track I think these these um, these paths as things move along in a way. Uh, Caitlin, thanks. This is Laurie Ketchadorian again. I wanted to come back to where we started in a way with your analysis of your title and particularly the part about heritage beyond saving. And I was struck by the way you described it as sort of meaning two things or having two meanings. One, this idea about how we think about heritage beyond the preservation paradigm. But the other, uh, in terms of the idea that there is some heritage that is beyond saving, that sometimes heritage is beyond saving or is just too far gone, as you, as you mentioned. Um, and we get a glimpse of this dual reading in your conclusion a bit. And I'm wondering if you have some sense of under what circumstances these different regimes of care are appropriate. Are there situations where you think that for instance, the conventional um, preservation paradigm is more suitable than curated decay. What are the criteria, uh, or that makes it sound too managerial, but do you have, um, do you have a sense of where, where you think these different approaches are, are, are appropriate and who should make this assessment? Um, what role publics and stakeholders uh, should play in that decision? And I, I'm sort of combining that with, a, I think, a related question that gets us back to the issue of politics, because it does seem to me like there are contexts, uh, contexts of inequality, of colonialism, of collective trauma, genocide, dispossession, where for certain communities, the conventional practices of commemoration 
including uh, uh, you know certain pasts and including its material traces are inseparable from projects of collective healing and social justice. And so then the question is, if we shift to a mode of remembrance that is concerned less with explanation of sort of what happened here than the imaginative encounter with decay itself, do we run the risk of foreclosing the political um, and sort of social work that those more traditional modes of remembrance make possible? Yes, we probably do. I mean, I, th I think um, as far as the first element of your question, the sort of who decides and w what sites are appropriate for this. Um, I'm, I'm about to do a project with Historic England and the National Trust to, to figure out some of this or to start to, fig to figure out a way to help people make decisions about when it may be appropriate to manage a site for change rather than for conservation. Um, and I think it's going to be very difficult to try and come up with a set of criteria that allows that to happen. I think one of the things that um, I started to think about recently in relation to this is um, is asking sort of institutions to sort of invert their ideas about significance and prioritization, because very often that's what ends up happening, particularly in climate change contexts where it's like, well, we just need to prioritize the sites that we want um, that are highest risk or the sites that have the highest social value or significance. And, and then we can, once it's prioritized, we can focus on those. But it always leaves the discussion about the sites at the bottom of that list <laughs> um, sort of untouched um, because you, you're just prioritizing your way out of that uh, problem. And so asking instead, can you create a prioritization list where actually what you're doing is you're prioritizing sites where there is a high potential value in actually managing for change. So looking at a site which may be threatened in some way and asking whether there's a community that could uh, that has an interest in that site that could be engaged by perhaps doing a sort of excavation as it erodes out of a, um, a coastline or whether there's some interest in somehow understanding an element of its history which will be revealed through the process of change or ruination. Um, and so trying to focus that um, understanding on or, or to ask, for example, um, is there significance that can only be released by actually working with change um, really forces a, a sort of <clears throat> a, a shift in perspective, which I think is useful. And in relation to um, some of the sites that I looked at, I mean, I think what's they were available for me for this project because they were, in a sense, forgotten. <laughs> um, and they weren't being actively valued often in the moment um, that I encountered them. And one of the things I've become fascinated by is the way that a recognition of a site and a recognition of its risk or its vulnerability actually works pretty reliably to increase the perception of value that's associated with it. Um, and some of the scholars I worked with recently on the Heritage Futures Project, uh, Cornelius Holstorff among them, have written quite a lot about this, where you know, it's not a neutral act to um, to identify something as being at risk. It actually, um, in, in many ways, has a, a, a productive function in, in making people feel more inclined to actually save that thing. And so, I'm you know, I'm running up against that as well in the work that I'm currently doing, trying to understand that. And I think, in some sense, that's entirely appropriate. And if that social value increases to the point where people want to invest in a site and then somehow secure it for the future in a material sense, then um, certainly that's entirely appropriate. But there are other sites where actually relinquishing them and working through that process of relinquishment is also productive. Um, and so 
I think it has to be something that's really thought through carefully in particular places and as contexts change and not assuming that there's a sort of static social context that you can refer to um, and in the kinds of sites that you're talking about where there's something to be gained socially by recognition of a difficult history um, or a sort of material marker in some sense that, that, that actually holds that history and makes it visible then yes and I mean that is entirely appropriate I think there isn't, in, in no sense, was 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 I trying to propose, or am I trying to propose that this is going to be a sort of paradigm that overcomes mm -hmm. uh, and replaces the existing paradigm that we're working with. It's a sort of supplementary one that acknowledges, I think, an impulse that many heritage practitioners have, but don't feel comfortable articulating, or um, in, certainly in public. So. Thank you, Caitlin. We have enjoyed engaging with your book and speaking with you today immensely. Thank you so much. It's been very formative in our research group over the course of this year, and we look forward to reading what comes out, what is yet to come, and continuing the conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you today. Thank you, Caitlin. It's been terrific to chat with you. Thank you very much. I think we're done here, yeah? Okay, great. Excellent. <laughs>